turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 90. verses 1 and 2, the key word is God. 
God has always been there. Verses 1 and 2, Moses is looking back at the past. Uh, Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses. Uh, most likely, Moses wrote this psalm when he was an older man. Uh, after he had led the Israelites through the desert for many years. Uh, if you read the last words of Moses that are recorded at the end of Deuteronomy, and if you look at this psalm, you'll find some parallels. Uh, so, for example, Deuteronomy 33:27, Moses says, The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he uses that same word, dwelling place, in verse 1, as he looks back on how God has always been there. Uh, now, Moses had lived most of his life as someone who was without a permanent home. Uh, so as a young child, you might remember Moses' story, he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, so he was separated uh, for some of his childhood from his birth parents. He was well taken care of, uh, but uh, he was separated from many of his blood relatives. Uh, then as a young adult, uh, Moses grows up, he does something very foolish and impulsive, and he has to run away. And so then he lives another long period of his life in a foreign country, in Midian. And then he comes back and he delivers people of Israel from Egypt, uh, and then he leads them through the wilderness. So again, he's wandering without a permanent home. But here, when Moses is writing this psalm, this prayer, this song, he looks back on his whole life, on all these different stages of his life, and says, God has always been there with me and for me. God has been my dwelling place through every season of my life. And he doesn't just look back at his own life. He looks back all the way to the creation of the world. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So when Moses looks back, what he sees is that God has always been there. Getting up. Is there feedback? Okay. Um, John, try turning off the other two mics. And see I did already. You did already? Okay. Uh, I think this is the issue, and I'm going to unplug it. Does that solve the problem? Yeah. Yes. All right. We might leave that up. We, I'll get fix that. Anyway, we're still working, growing, learning. So um, if there's a ring, maybe just give me an ear signal. Uh, anybody can do that and 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 keep doing that and I'll we'll try to do the best we can to fix that. All right, here we go. Um, but here's a question. As you look back on your life, can you look back at the different seasons of your life as Moses did here? And can you look back on even the twists and turns and the times where you were perhaps without a permanent home or in the middle of, of things? And can you look back and say, God has always been there with me. Right? That's what the first part of this song invites us to do, is to look back and see God and his presence and his faithfulness with us. But then Moses goes on in verses 3 to 6 to the next section, and the next three steps on the stairway focus on the present. Verse 3 to 6, the key word is dust. You return man to dust. People are dust. So in verses 1 and 2, look back on God and his eternity. Verses 3 to 6, focus on our present and our mortality. In verses 1 and 2, look back on God's creation of the world. Verses 3 to 6, look back on the fall and its consequences in our present 
world. The phrase translated children of man in verse 3 uh, can also be translated children of Adam. That word man is Adam. Sort of a reminder of what God said to Adam in Genesis 3, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Verse 4 says, a thousand years in God's sight are just like yesterday, just like the hours that we all slept last night and didn't even notice as they passed by. Verses 5 and 6, Moses uses three metaphors to describe human life and how transient it is. He says, our lives are swept away as in an overwhelming flood. Our lives are like a dream that vanishes and is forgotten. Our lives are like grass. That quickly flourishes and just as quickly perishes. You see, the idea is human life is constantly being renewed by God, but it's also constantly fading. And I think the longer that you live on this earth, the more apparent this reality becomes. God renews and sustains his world every day, but the world is also decaying and wearing out just like every one of our bodies are gradually in the process of doing. If you look back at history, the vast majority of people who have ever lived, their names and life stories have been forgotten. Mm -hmm. Not possible to be recovered by us. Sometimes we go around thinking that we are so important and the world will fall apart without us. But Moses reminds us that one day we will all die and the world will go on without us. And as we begin a new year, it's important for us to face this fact. We are dust, every single one of us. It's the most consistently verified statistic of all. We are dust and to dust we shall return. And in the next section, verses seven through 11, Moses goes one step further. Why is human life fleeting and fading? Why are our bodies in this world wearing down and wearing out? And the key word for verses 7 through 11 is sin. People are dust because we are sinners. And Moses reminds us that our sin calls forth God's wrath. Now the idea that human sinfulness calls forth God's wrath is not a popular idea today. It's not perhaps the most pleasant idea to think about. But verses 7 through 11 emphasizes it over and over. Verse 7, we're brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. Verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you. The point is that most of us don't consider God's power and God's righteous anger against sin in the way that we should. The Bible confronts us with these realities, even though they're unpleasant. Now, what is God's wrath according to the Bible? Well, God's wrath is not an arbitrary fit of rage. It's not saying that God is volatile and suddenly gets angry for no good reason. No, God's wrath is his righteous displeasure at our moral corruption. In other words, God looks at our world he looks at how human beings treat one another. Mm -hmm. Lying, putting others down, taking advantage of others, our greed and pride and self-centeredness and idolatry, and God is not pleased with much of what he sees. And God says, I will not let this simply go on and on and on forever in the way it is. 
Verse 8 tells us God sees not only our iniquities, our sort of obvious sins, he also sees our secret sins. You have set our secret sins in the light of your presence. In other words, God sees not just the sins we hide uh, from others, but even the sins that we hide from ourselves. Right? Most of us are blind to our greatest flaws and weaknesses. If you want proof of that statement, look at almost any marriage. Almost inevitably, one spouse will recognize significant flaws and weaknesses that the other spouse hardly acknowledges. <laughs> now, in a growing marriage, when one spouse sees the other's weaknesses and flaws, that person will express those things lovingly and respectfully and not harshly in an accusatory manner. But also, if your spouse brings to light a weakness or flaw that perhaps you don't readily recognize, don't respond by being defensive and accusatory in return. Instead, you might start by saying, well, you probably know me better than anyone else. You're probably onto something. I should probably take this to heart. And that's what will help us grow. You see, one of God's purposes for marriage is to be a mirror that sometimes shows us our own selfishness, the darkest depths of our souls. Right? Why did God design marriage that way? Because marriage is meant to be a pale reflection of our relationship with God, the all-seeing, all-knowing other. The one who is fundamentally different than us and yet looks into us, sees us more clearly than we see ourselves. But marriage is also intended to be not just a mirror into our own selfishness, but it's also meant to be a window into the steadfast love of God. And to have another person who embodies and who reminds us of God's steadfast love in our lives and his presence with us and for us. That's what marriage is meant to embody and, and represent. And of course, that's what we can all experience in our relationship with God. That he sees and knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees our secret sins, even the ones that we don't acknowledge about ourselves. But he also is committed to us in steadfast love. So we've gone from the mountaintop looking back on God and his presence, that he's always been there. And we've gone down into the valley, seeing that we're dust, seeing that we're sinners, and now at the bottom of the valley comes the center of the psalm, the central prayer of this psalm, verse 12. The key word is wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's Moses' prayer, that we would grow in wisdom. And Moses is showing us that we can only gain true wisdom by facing our mortality and our sinfulness, by uh, dealing with these unpleasant and yet undeniable facts about our human condition. Uh, Tim and Kathy Keller have a devotional on the Psalms, and they write in their devotional, if we do not face our mortality and our sinfulness, we will not be wise. We will be constantly shocked by what people, including ourselves, are capable of, and by how life swiftly takes away everything we love. We will trust in our own abilities too much and seek satisfaction in things that we will inevitably lose. Face sin and death or be out of touch with reality. You see, according to the Bible, wisdom is being in touch with reality and ultimately with the reality of God. 
And so this psalm leads us from the mountaintop looking back on God's presence and God's faithfulness and God being our dwelling place. And it leads us down into the valley so that we can become truly wise. But this psalm doesn't end down in the valley of our mortality and our sinfulness. If we only read up to verse 11, we might think that this psalm is a downer. That it just, we might even be tempted to despair. And only think about how sinful and how mortal we are. Uh, sometimes Christians, if you read some Christians throughout history, sort of get stuck here. And focus primarily or even almost exclusively on our mortality and our sinfulness. Mm -hmm. But this psalm doesn't end there. It brings us there so that we can get wisdom, so that we can see ourselves for who we really are. But then it looks back up again. We can look back up to God and find hope in God as we look to the future. Death and sin don't have the first or last word in the Bible, nor do they in this psalm. So, stairway starting to go up again. Verses 13 and 14, the key word is mercy. God has mercy. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity or have mercy on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. So if you look at verses 13 and 14, they echo and respond to verses 3 through 11. So in verse 3, God says to people, return to dust. But then, uh, here in verse 13, Moses prays, return, O Lord. Verses 5 to 6, uh, the grass is renewed in the morning, but by evening it fades and withers. But then in verse 14, Moses says, Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Your love that endures not just for a day, but for all eternity. Verse 9, Moses says, Our days pass away under your wrath, and our years come to an end like a sigh. But then in verse 15, Moses says, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we have seen evil. Do you see how this psalm uh, sort of leads us down into the valley, but then it echoes uh, as, it, as it ascends to the heights again. You see, Moses believed that somehow God could intervene and reverse the cycle of sin and death that we human beings find ourselves in. Moses had hope mm -hmm. that God could lead us out of the valley of sin and death. And today, we can see something that Moses couldn't, or something that he only glimpsed from a distance. We can see how God did that. Right? When we just celebrated at Christmas, Jesus came into our world. He came all the way down to meet us in the valley of our sin and death. And he lived his life, and he died our death on the cross, and then he rose again to bring us up with him into the presence of God, now and forever. Amen. That's the hope that we have, and now God calls us to let go of our sin and to cling to Jesus. And he's promised that for everyone who turns to Jesus, our sins will be taken away from us as far as the east is from the west. Mm. That we can be brought out of the valley of death and sin up to the mountain of life everlasting with God. So praise God for his mercy. That's the first step up the stairway. 
And the second step up the stairway, verse 15, the key word is joy. Make us glad. Make us joyful for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let me encourage us as we look ahead to the new year, we have a lot of reasons to rejoice. Most of all, because of the good news of Jesus Christ that hasn't changed. Romans 5, 8, God has demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And Paul says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Romans 5, 3. You see, Paul says even in the middle of our sufferings, we can experience joy. Because when we experience our sufferings in a close relationship with Jesus, they're not wasted. They're not meaningless. In Sunday school today, we talked about how Paul saw his situation when he was in prison, writing to the Philippians, and he saw God's purpose, God's good purpose in the middle of it. So he didn't just focus on his difficult circumstances, but he found joy because he could see that God was with him and that God's good purposes were being advanced even through his afflictions. You know, maybe you're going through a difficult time, a difficult season. Maybe there's physical illness, or maybe there's challenging relationships, maybe there's financial stress, maybe there's trouble <laughs> at school or at work. All of us will face afflictions of one kind or another in this coming year. But the question is, are we drawing closer to Jesus in our afflictions? Or are we drifting away or even running away from him? Martin Luther once said, affliction is the best book in my library. <laughs> and he wrote a lot of books. In other words, what he's saying is afflictions are more valuable than anything else in the world to teach us important and valuable lessons. They can teach us to become wise when we walk closely with Jesus through them. And when we remember that Jesus went through many afflictions himself, he's not a stranger to affliction. Whatever affliction you're going through, Jesus can relate. Jesus has gone before us, and he walks with us. So mercy, joy, and that brings us to our last key word, verses 16 and 17, hope. The word hope isn't actually in the psalm, but I think it's the theme uh, that summarizes these last two verses. As Moses has looked back to the past on God being there all the time, has faced the facts of our life in the present, and yet looks forward to the future with hope. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Establish the work of our hands. If the first half of the psalm focuses on our human limitations in light of God's greatness, the second half of the psalm focuses on God's, God's character that brings us hope. You see, this psalm leads us to humility in the first half especially, and it leads us to hopefulness especially in the second half. And that's uh, the life that, that Jesus invites us to live, a life of humility and yet hopefulness through Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, 
immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Sometimes we can look at the world around us, and we can be tempted to throw up our hands in frustration. Sometimes we can look at our own lives, see years passing away, perhaps longings still unfulfilled, prospects growing dimmer. But this song ends on a note of hope. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He wrote, God will never suffer this world, which has once seen Christ's blood shed upon it, to be always the devil's stronghold. Christ came here to deliver this world from the sway of the powers of darkness. And one day, men and angels shall unite to cry, Hallelujah, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. What a satisfaction it will be in that day to have had a share in the fight, to have aided in winning the victory for our Lord. Happy are they who trust this conquering Lord and who fight side by side with him, doing their little in his name and by his strength. Why has God put us here as a church? To do our little in his name and by his strength. So that his work might be known here, in Talcottville, here, in Vernon, and in the surrounding towns, so that his glorious power might be made known to us and to the generations that come after us, that his favor and his beauty would rest upon us, and that by his grace he would establish the work of our hands. Jesus said, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit to the glory of the Father. That's a good prayer to pray. That's a good goal to work towards in this new year. To abide in Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and trust that he will give us all that we need along with it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this psalm that helps us to look back at the past and see that you have always been there through every season of our lives, through every stage and age of history, that you are the everlasting God and you are our dwelling place. We thank you for this song that reminds us of our limitations, our mortality, and our sinfulness. And it humbles us before you, Lord. And yet we thank you for the hope that it brings us. We thank you that we can look to the future, to this next year, with the hope and joy that come from your mercy and your grace and your power. Lord, we pray that you would dwell with us, be our dwelling place in this year to come. We pray that you would establish the work of our hands. We pray that we would abide in you and that we would invest our efforts in the things that you have for us things that you desire for us. And that this next season, that this next year uh, might be uh, one chapter in the story of your faithfulness, of your steadfast love. We pray this in 